Hey everyone, this is Taylor Halverson from Book of Mormon Central. We've had a lot of requests to add our weekly Come Follow Me videos with myself and Tyler Griffin to our podcast. We are very excited to do this. However, just know that we use a lot of visuals in our videos. So if you ever want to see the visuals, check out Book of Mormon Central on YouTube. We hope you enjoy. I'm Taylor. I'm Tyler. And I'm Anthony Sweat. This is Book of Mormon Central's Come Follow Me Insights. Today, part two. Official Declaration 1 and 2. So as we transition into Official Declaration number 1, followed by number 2, I think it's really important for us to keep in mind that Article of Faith number 9 says that we don't just believe in the many revelations that have been given or that were currently being given to the Prophet Joseph in 1842, but many great and important things would be revealed at future times as the need arises. Um, so I think it's important right out of the chute before we jump into, into the actual official declaration number one to set the stage historically and, and culturally for the need for the what they called the manifesto, this ending of plural marriage, because there's a lot going on in the United States, and there are two things that are really in the crosshairs of those lawmakers back east. Yeah. They call them the, the twin relics of barbarism. Yeah, and the twin the twin relics of barbarism are slavery and polygamy, and it's at the 1856 Republican National Convention that the Republican Party, in essence, says we're going to take these these two things on. So a lot of people don't realize that the ending of polygamy is actually very tied to the ending of slavery and the Civil War. They're very connected, and and the Civil War because with the ending of slavery, once this ending of slavery in the Civil War, when that was settled in the mid 1860s, then they start to shift their attention to say, let's end the other relic of barbarism of polygamy in America, and so in the 1870s and 80s, a lot of attention is shifted, in particular out west, to the Latter Day Saints who are practicing it on our own in Utah Territory. Out in a territory. We were, yeah. we weren't, we're not Utah's even a state not going to be a state until 1896. We're a federal territory, which means we're not allowed to pick our own leaders. They're appointed by the, the, the federal government back in Washington, D.C. Now, it's important to note that the first time that polygamy was publicly announced for, for everyone to hear was in a church conference on the 29th of August, 1852 yeah. in Salt Lake. So, 1852. Now, 10 years later, the 8th of July, 1862, uh, Justin Morrill of Vermont introduced a bill into Congress called the, the Morrill Act, mm -hmm. where it—this is the first bill that goes after polygamy, and people may not recognize this, but Abraham Lincoln was the president who signed that bill yeah. into law. Yeah. And, you know, the, the Moral Anti-Bigamy Act, as it's known, really didn't have any teeth behind it. Uh, and let, let's also say first, it's important to recognize, too, that Latter-day Saints didn't invent plural marriage. Um, uh, there, there's been research done by American uh, history scholars that have shown that there were a bunch of different um, uh, groups that were practicing plural marriage, Native American, African American, even some Catholic. And so this isn't just aiming at the Latter-day Saints, but we are the most prominent group. And the most vocal about it. And most open. we're out west on our own. You have, to, you have to recognize that this time in American history, too, they're trying to colonize. When I say they, I mean Easterners, particularly Washington, D.C., politicians, they want to west, they, they, they want to westernize the West. And they, and they kind of feel like, particularly those Latter-day Saints out West, there's a lot of mixing of church and state going on. They're out there on their own. We're not sure they're loyal to the federal government. We don't know where they stand. We've got to rein them in and get them under control. And so these bills start to pass partly because of all these tensions, but they can't really do anything about it originally because it's a civil war. You can pass laws, and, but if you don't enforce them, the laws mean almost nothing. Yeah, so the penalty under the Morrill Act was $500 fine and imprisonment for a term of five years. But with the Civil War taking place back east— And no federal officials to enforce no, it either. They're not—that law is not being enforced. Yeah. So then you get the Edmonds Bill in 1882. So this is 
20 years after the Morrill bill. Well, there, there, were a, there were a handful of bills in between that tried to give the federal government, uh, you know, the, the, the Wade bill, the Cragen bill, the Cullum's bill in 1870. Mm -hmm. they're all, those are all trying to say, okay, we passed this law. How do we help the federal government enforce it? And then it really and, kicks and into it really high kicks gear in with the Edmonds Act. With the Edmonds Act. Yeah. And then five years later, 1887, Congress then passed the Edmonds-Tucker Act, which is, that, that is the big one. It disincorporated the church. It left the, it dissolved the Perpetual Immigration Fund, gave all of the property of the church to the government for the benefit of the common schools in Utah, and it took away the right of Utah women to vote. Oh, there, and there were other huge things, too. And so process that really quick. One, one of the things you have to understand is the Edmonds-Tucker Act goes after the church specifically. It's not just a general anti-polygamy bill. They are going after, that bill goes after the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It seizes any assets uh, over $50,000. It also does not allow immigrants to come into America who are Latter-day Saints. So process that. We won't let you become a citizen of this country if you're a Latter-day Saint. In other words, we can't gather to Zion now. So Zion and gathering has now stopped because of this bill. They're going to seize control of our temples. They also have taken away women along. Like, we are the leaders along with Wyoming, Wyoming in the Suffrage Utah. Act of, of, of giving women the right to vote, and the Edmonds-Tucker Act revokes that right to vote. It, it makes people—it um, required any juror, voter, or official to swear an anti-polygamy oath. So not even if you were practicing polygamy, but if you even stated that you believed that in it or that it should be legal, you were not allowed to act in those civil—I um, mean, there are so many thing after thing after thing. Uh, they could seize any asset from the church that they didn't feel was necessary for a religious purpose. Um, they have jail polygamists for up to five years. It just—to cut to the chase, it wreaks havoc. It wreaks havoc on the church in terms of our temples. Uh, we're going to lose our temples, our ability to bind families together. We are going to lose our ability to create Zion and gather people to Zion. We're going to lose all of our church leadership in prison, the First Presidency, Quorum of the Twelve. Yeah. All the leaders. Yeah. And um, that's really what Wilford Woodruff is dealing with as a whole. And so, at, you know, at the end of the day, the question is, well, what would you do? And the, ultimately, the question that Wilford Woodruff is saying is, what is essential to our church? Is polygamy our core essential doctrine. Is it in our Articles of Faith, even? Yeah. And the very fact that Wilford Woodruff would be willing to take this question to the Lord, saying, can we get rid of plural marriage, shows that it should not and was not the defining uh, doctrine of the church, even though they fought so stridently for it. Yeah. What Wilford Woodruff is taking to the Lord, in essence, is what's more important, temples, mothers and fathers, in their homes to gather and build Zion um, and, and uh, to allow the leaders of the church to continue to operate or to keep practicing polygamy? That was his question. So those 1880s, those were rough years here in Utah and, and in parts of Arizona, parts of Idaho, rough years where there's lots of persecution coming against these families. Oh, yeah. The, these federal—I mean— I would invite everybody at home, make sure you read Saints Volume 2, you know, these chapters, they're like the late 20s, early 30s chapters of Saints Volume 2, where you can get the detailed, wonderfully written stories of women and men going into hiding, women being forced to testify against their own husbands, people having to take assumed names, um, you know, sons and daughters not knowing who their actual father was for, for fear of their dad being imprisoned. It, it was just, Crazy. it was a terrible time. John Taylor, by the way, as president of the church, has to go into hiding. He gives his last public address in the Salt Lake Tabernacle as federal officials are waiting to arrest him after the address. And uh, the church blocks the guards and everything, and they usher him out the back, and he's never seen in public again, dies in hiding. And Wilfred Woodruff will say he died because of the pressures of polygamy yeah. persecution. It's a very, very trying time for them. So before we get to Wilfred Woodruff and the actual declaration, it's really important, back to Article of Faith number 12 that we said we would touch on about honoring and obeying and sustaining the law. Our church uh, deliberately went against the law 
at this time. You know, there is a revelation in the Missouri period where the Lord says, um, when it comes concerning the laws of the land, I will that you obey whatsoever I say unto you. So it's not quite as black and white as we want to make it sometimes. And the church felt that these laws that were being passed were unjust. Now, while we were engaged in civil disobedience, protecting people's identity and putting people into hiding and things like that to practice plural marriage, the church also did, though, take the legal route. If you feel that laws are unjust, then we have recourse, uh, particularly within the United States of America, in a democracy, to try to get laws changed. So the church did appeal the law, and it went all the oh, way to the, the Supreme, Supreme Court. Court. And in 1890, the Supreme Court upheld the Edmonds-Tucker Act, and that was the final blow. Yep. That's what kind of makes us go, we've pursued every avenue we can. I mean, what, what, what do we do? So, so Tony had already mentioned this earlier, this idea of the, the government has made it very clear they will confiscate all of the possessions of the church, including the temples. We will lose our ability to do any temple work. So you can picture the prophet of God, Wilford, Wood, Wilford Woodruff, with the weight of this situation on his shoulders, in the mantle that he's carrying, as he goes to God to say, what would thou have us do? If, if God tells us that we need to keep performing plural marriages, you know that he and the other leaders are going to defend that to their death, to, regardless of the cost. Yeah. They were willing to do whatever God wanted them to do. But I love the fact that he turns to, to he who stands at the head of this work to ask him what he would have us do. And it was on the night of September 23rd, 1890, when he received this revelation from the Lord that the church should cease the practice of plural marriage. So the next day, after he's received this revelation, he, he puts a handwritten copy down in front of some of the general authorities, but this one's a little different because yeah. he's doing this a little differently. Than it's important to know that Wilfred Woodruff is counseling with his counselors, but this is not a unanimous decision originally. This is a revelation that he receives and he comes to you know, uh, Wilford Woodruff uh, says the Lord made it plain that it was perfectly clear that this was the right thing. But some of the apostles find out about Wilford Woodruff's statement like, I'm going to, the Lord has made it manifest to me that we will submit to the laws of the country. Some of the apostles find out about it reading a newspaper. Well, they're getting ready to get on a train. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what? So they will all convene, and he will lay it before them. But there's there's difficulty. I mean, this is, uh, um, this is right off the church's essay, The Ending of Plural Marriage. They say the members of the Quorum of the Twelve varied in their reactions to the manifesto. Franklin D. Richards was sure it was the work of the Lord. Francis M. Lyman said that he had endorsed the manifesto fully when he first heard it. Not all the Twelve accepted the document immediately. John W. Taylor, who is John, John President John Taylor's son, remember President John Taylor went to his deathbed defending plural marriage, saying, we will not relinquish this. John W. Taylor said he did not, quote, not yet feel quite right about it, end of quote. John Henry Smith candidly admitted that, quote, the manifesto had disturbed his feelings very much and that he was, quote, still somewhat at sea about it. Within a week, however, all members of the Twelve voted to sustain the manifesto. That's on the church's essay. Yeah. Now, Tony, some people um, have said things like, well, this isn't really a revelation. He's just responding to political pressure. What would you say to that? I would say all revelation <laughs> is a response to cultural conditions and needs uh, of God's people. All revelation is. Uh, you, you could read the Doctrine and Covenants as a whole, and nearly every one of those revelations are a response to temporal, mortal, cultural conditions of the time. That's an interesting point, Tony. Think about Exodus. The people were in bondage, and God comes, inserts himself into history, and provides revelation to change a situation that was oppressive, that could only really be fixed with God intervening. And God basically said to the saints through Wilford Woodruff, it is not my will for you to go into bondage to the United States because of this one practice. And so we see that God will provide revelation as needed to his people. We should expect God to participate in our lives. Before, before we go on with what Taylor just said, if we didn't think God was responding 
giving revelation based off cultural conditions, then we would have no word of wisdom. Right. Because without conspiring men in the latter days, the Lord doesn't need to give a revelation called the word of wisdom. Right. Uh, if we didn't think the Lord gave revelation responding to cultural conditions, we wouldn't have all these wonderful teachings helping us to combat pornography, for example. Because if pornography didn't exist, the Lord wouldn't give these revelations regarding it. All revelation is a response to the needs, conditions, and culture that his children find themselves in. I, I, love, I love how we sing, we thank thee, O God, for a prophet to guide us in these yeah. latter days. It's not, we don't thank him for a prophet to guide us through the ancient days because those aren't our days. So it's beautiful that Wilford Woodruff is living in his culture, his environment, his political climate of that day, and making decisions that are necessary for the church to be able to move forward and for the kingdom of God to, to roll forth. And that's always the question. What's needed within that time and that setting and that context to keep the kingdom moving forward? That's it. And that was his question at the time. Now, you'll notice that 1890, October, is when it, it gets presented to the church and accepted. Yeah, that's important to say, by the way, after the manifesto, and we need to read what he says, but and we will, it's important to know that in October of 1890 at that general conference, the manifesto was presented to the body of the church and was sustained unanimously, although some did abstain from voting. But the report in the Deseret News anyway was that it was unanimous. unanimous. So after that, now you have some aftermath that's going to take place. And and like Tony's already said, not everybody was cheering when they heard this news. There were a lot of people who have who have sacrificed their life, their their good name, their fortune for, for plural marriage and the families yeah. that were now existing and And that that is a big, big problem too, because remember the moment we say we're no law we're gonna submit to the laws, mm -hmm. the big question that comes up is what about our existing families? Does that mean that husbands who have two wives or three wives, that they're going to choose to go only stay with one and abandon the other two? Women were, uh, you know, Zina Huntington Young says the hearts of many were tried with this announcement, and there were a lot of unresolved and kind of nebulous questions in the air. Yeah. After it, went, it was announced, this, this is a difficult time, and there were still some people trying to perform. Uh, marriages when Wilfred Woodruff found out that one had been performed in the endowment house. What did he do? Yeah. He tears down the tears. endowment house. <laughs> but what's hard is that some people in the context too, they were wondering, now is this just Wilfred Woodruff appeasing the government? The government. And we can still do and, this secretly? And well, it's important to know that in the mid-1880s, we send people proactively up to Canada, like up to Cardston. And down to Mexico. And down to Mexico to go practice plural marriage. Because we're like, okay, if in America it's, it's, we're having issues, maybe we can send people to these other countries. So even after it's announced, there's some people that are just wondering, are we just, are we just saying and appeasing this? Do we really mean that we're going to stop this? What about existing families? Um, and Wilford Woodruff will say, I did not say that you should abandon your families. Correct. Um, husbands, you have no right to abandon your wives and children. And so many people continue to live in plural marriages as well. Mm -hmm. So we've we've painted the the picture, hopefully, with some of the the historical and cultural and political landscape that's surrounding this manifesto in in uh, 1890. Now let's actually read some of the the parts of the actual declaration. And it's important too, um, as we read both official declaration one and two. These are declarations that a revelation has been received. These aren't the revelations themselves, which maybe if the revelation was written down word for word, we would have uh, had them or the, the, the church would have had them incorporate as sections of the Doctrine and Covenants. Yeah. If it was a thus saith the Lord but kind of a this is a Yeah, this is a declaration that these key revelations were received as a whole and some explanations around them. Good. So they, they introduced these press dispatches in the first paragraph, having been sent for political purposes from Salt Lake City, which have been widely published to the effect that the Utah Commission, in their recent report to the Secretary of the Interior, alleged that plural marriages are still being solemnized and that 40 or more such marriages have been contracted in Utah since last June or during the past year. He goes on to say in the second paragraph, 
I therefore as president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints do hereby in the most solemn manner declare that these charges are false. We're not teaching polygamy or plural marriage nor permitting any person to enter into its practice. And I deny that either 40 or any other number of plural marriages have, have during that time period been solemnized in our temple or in another place in the territory. I'm just going to jump down to the paragraph where he says, inasmuch as laws have been enacted by Congress forbidding plural marriages, which laws have been pronounced constitutional by the Court of Last Resort, that's the Supreme Court that we kind of talked about, I hereby declare my intention to submit to those laws and use my influence with members of the church over which I preside to have them do likewise. That's really the crux of it. That's is it. We fought this. You said it's constitutional. The Lord has revealed to me that we should um, stop teaching this practice. I intend to use my influence to have the church submit to this going forward. Yeah. Now, as you jump down below, there's, there's the statement from President Lorenzo Snow to get the sustaining vote to, to make this official, and then underneath that you get these excerpts from three addresses by President uh, Wilford Woodruff. Now, these excerpts are excellent. These are, these are amazing. Yeah. And that first paragraph there, the, the first line of the first paragraph, is, is a fairly common phrase that we, we use in the church attributed yeah. to Wilford Woodruff, where he says, the Lord will never permit me or any other man who stands as president of this church to lead you astray. It is not in the program. It is not in the mind of God. Yeah, and though, by the way, Wilford Woodruff isn't the, the first person I've ever found as I've researched and looked at this. Brigham Young says this, that the Lord will not permit the president of the church to lead him, the church astray. And it's been reiterated by many people, many church leaders, even as recently as Elder Ballard has said mm -hmm. that the Lord won't allow the leaders of the church to lead you astray. Now, there's a big, one of the things that I think is important here is to understand what that means, or could mean anyway, uh, the word astray. Uh, some people interpret it as saying, the Lord won't permit his leaders of the church to ever make any mistakes. Now, while that is fine to make that interpretation, I personally don't think that's accurate. The restoration of the gospel kicks off with a prophet losing 116 pages of sacred scripture, after all. Um, the Lord allows us, as we learn and grow, and leaders, local, stake, and even general leaders, to make mistakes. That's a different than leading astray. And maybe one analogy that I like to give, we all as parents make mistakes. And we sit down with our, and try to lead our families as best as possible, and we pray and we seek for revelation, and we get revelation, and we get inspiration to guide our families. But it doesn't mean that we don't make mistakes in implementing it or in figuring it out along the way. And if I brought in my children and lined them up and said, does, does your mom and dad ever make mistakes leading your family as parents? They would have to fill up another hour's worth of this show documenting how many mistakes we make. Uh, as parents, in our weakness. But if you asked our children, do you, does your mom and dad lead your family astray? Now, that's a whole other question altogether. Um, mm -hmm. And the promise is that the prophets will not lead us astray from the gospel of Jesus Christ and the covenants and ordinances thereof. That's how I interpret this. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's that idea that um, when you look at repentance the way that President Russell M. Nelson talked about it in General Conference a few years ago, using the Greek word metanoeo, it's to change. I think that we can look at that word and that idea of repentance not in this, oh, I've committed this serious sin, it's just sometimes we need to change. Sometimes we need to shift the way we're looking or, or retune our ears or yeah. shift our heart, turn our heart or adjust something. That's repentance. And I'm, I don't just repent individually. My wife and I repent collectively in our home like Tony's talking and our family repents. We change. We adjust. We make improvements over time and we seek God's will throughout that process. Well, the church collectively is under President Nelson's definition, is doing a repent. doesn't mean that they, they committed a serious sin. Or doesn't mean they led the church or astray. they led the church astray. It's just yeah. that we're making a change. We're, we're, we're getting more in line now, currently, with what is needed based on what God is giving us. And there's power 
in sticking with God's prophets, seers, and revelators who are watchmen on the tower. They have a more elevated view than I have. And and one, by the way, if you look at the beacon of of what the church is aimed towards, if there's something in the center goal's eye, it obviously is the the Savior, but it's in connection to the Savior through the ordinances mm-hmm. of the temple, through the ordinances of the gospel and the ordinances of the temple. And so when the prophets say we won't lead you astray, they're saying we will always teach you the gospel of Jesus Christ and administer the ordinances of salvation and exaltation. And we won't lead you astray from that. And the very fact that Wilford Woodruff is saying, Lord, do you want us to keep practicing plural marriage or do you want us to lose the ability to perform the ordinances of salvation and exaltation? Shows him keeping the church. This is an example of keeping the church on the path of the ordinances. Now, in the second excerpt that's given at this cash stake conference, he asks them, because there are a lot of people who are, like we've mentioned, they're wrestling with this, they're trying to figure out, is this really from God? And he says, in order to answer that question, you need to step back and answer a different question, which, which is really, really the crux of the matter that was facing him as the prophet at the time. Should we allow the First Presidency Quorum of the Twelve and all the leaders to be imprisoned? Should we lose all of the assets of the Church, including the temples? Should we break up all these families because the the men are in prison? Or should we let go of plural marriage? That's the question he's asking them to answer. And it's fascinating to me that previous to 1890, I could be wrong, but I don't know of any records of any ceilings of children to parents taking place in the temples. And then it's a few years after the manifesto where we get to retain our temples, hold on to them, Mm -hmm. and we get to move forward in not having the First Presidency arrested in the Quorum of the Twelve and all these men put in prison, that the revelation comes in the St. George Temple to start sealing children to parents. Yeah, some some people might not be aware that prior to this time, and you'll see the connection here in a second, they we weren't sealing children to parents, children to their parents. We were not seeing, sealing vertically. We were often sealing horizontally or dynastically. Sometimes they called it the law of adoption, mm-hmm. and people would be sealed up to prominent church leaders' families. And in 1894, I believe, is the year, just a few years after the manifesto, and we get to retain the temples, like Tyler's saying, this revelation comes where the Lord tells Warford Woodruff, you sell parents to children to children and make the chain vertical, which has been the direction we've gone ever since. And, and ever since, what a blessing for countless people on both sides of the veil. Brothers and sisters, if you stop and think about this for a moment, what, what an amazing thing that there are times in your life where if you think about this, you'll probably be able to identify a few of them, where God has asked you to open your hands and let go of something that you were really comfortable with or you had gotten used to or you were in a comfort zone, and he sometimes will ask you to let go of that thing. In this case, it's plural marriage for these people. But you'll notice he doesn't ever leave people empty-handed. He replaces it with something even better. When we're willing Mm. to trust him and believe that he knows what he's doing, to use some of the the ideas that Isaiah teaches in Isaiah chapter 40 where where he's trying to reason with these people who are having a really hard time trusting God and believing that he's going to fulfill all these promises that he's made. Isaiah goes into this, this mode where he's asking them questions where he says things like, who, who has measured the heavens with, with the span, with, with a measuring rod? Who's held all of the waters of the earth in the hollows of his hand? Who's, who's held all of the lands and the, and the nations yeah. of the earth in a balance? Who can counsel God? He, he, he's giving us this idea that, you know what, we need to be meek and recognize God knows what he's doing. Yeah. I'm able to, to do my own. Trust him. I'm able to do my own work. That's right. You know, as he... 2 Nephi 27. I do just one paragraph, the very last paragraph of, I just look back to kind of what we were saying about his focus of where he says, um, 
the Lord had decreed, I'm in the last paragraph midway through, the Lord had decreed the establishment of Zion, article of faith. He has decreed the finishing of this temple. He had decreed that salvation of living and dead should be given in these valleys and the mountains, and Almighty God decreed the devil should not thwart it. If you can understand that, that is the key to it. That shows his motivation right there for ending plural marriage. That's beautiful. Now, it's now I said ending. It, but maybe we should it's talk. important to note that yeah, it didn't 1890 end. did not end plural marriage. Leading to the end of plural it marriage. opened the door for the ending of plural marriage. You know, so I heard one, uh, a colleague of mine one time say that the starting of plural marriage, we like to think of plural marriage as starting and stopping like a kitchen faucet, like turned on, whoosh, turned off. Whoosh. And he said the starting of plural marriage, it's, it's more like one of those big, you know, fire hydrant or dam wheels where you're like... The starting of plural marriage was really difficult and really slow, and the ending of plural marriage, turning that thing off, was really difficult and really slow. Yeah, so in 1904, the church gives what has come to be known as the Second Manifesto. Yeah, we first just shot down First Manifesto, and then this is Second Manifesto. And what's going on in between here is Wilford Woodruff says, we intend to submit to the laws of the land. We're not going to teach practice plural marriage anymore. But we send people to Canada and Mexico, and uh, and many plural marriages still take place in the church, sometimes without Wilford Woodruff's knowledge. So it just kind of continues as a whole. And, and two things lead up to a second manifesto. One of them is that B.H. Roberts is elected to Congress, and he has three wives, and he is not allowed to take his they seat. They will not let him sit in Congress. And he's like, nope, Washington. he's a polygamist. And then in 1903, Reed Smoot, who's a monogamist and has one wife, he's elected to the Senate in, um, oh, because we should say, sorry, in 1896, we, become uh, a state. we get statehood. Uh, and so we're able to send people to Congress in the Senate. But they won't let Reed Smoot take his seat. And they... Back in, in, in uh, the Senate, they're like, we need to investigate this man, and we need to make sure uh, that he is loyal and that the Latter-day Saints are loyal. We have heard too many rumors that they're continuing to do a polygamy. So there's going to be the Reed Smoot hearings. Uh, they'll call President Joseph F. Smith. Wilford Woodruff has now died. Joseph F. Smith is the prophet. They call him to testify for the Senate. They make him lay open things about the temple. The temple endowment. Um, there's a lot of difficulties, but at the end of the day, after the Reed Smoot hearings, they, number one, they allow Reed Smoot to take his seat. And one of the classic lines from his hearing is, one of the senators says, I would rather a uh, polygamist who doesn't polyg than a monogamist who doesn't monog. Uh, <laughs> kind of as a jab, like, hey, he might belong to a church that had polygamy, uh, but he's a better, more moral man than a bunch of you other senators who I know are not loyal to your wives. Yeah. So Reed Smoot's actually able to take his seat and does great work, changes the reputation of the church in Washington. But one of the results is Joseph F. Smith comes home and says, we're drawing the line on, done. on uh, plural marriage. And he issues what's called the Second Manifesto, which in essence says anybody who enters into a new plural marriage from here forward will be excommunicated from the church. And there were many who did that. Yeah, and one of the difficulties was we even lose some of our apostles. In particular, John W. Taylor will be excommunicated from the church uh, after the Second Manifesto because he refuses to, yeah. uh, to agree that plural marriage should be relinquished. So you would think, okay, now we're done. That's the end, right? Wrong. Wrong. Yeah. This is where you get some some splinter groups and some breakoff groups. It's it's the, the point of departure for them where they say, you know what, Joseph was a prophet, Brother Brigham was a prophet, John Taylor was a prophet, but Wilfred Woodruff got it wrong, and now Joseph F. Smith, he's got it wrong. So they break off. There are different splinter groups that begin here. Yeah, this, this really starts the core of what is known today as FLDS, or fundamentalist. fundamentalist. And fundamentalist means they believe in, as it was called, the principle. They call right. polygamy the principle, and they think it is fundamental to the they church. They think it's the, the end-all, be-all. So what happens is, is you get these different groups breaking off, some bigger than others and more influential than others, but they keep uh, declaring to the world that they are what used to be called Mormons, that 
They're yeah. members of this fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or other breakoff groups. And so there's this association of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints with these groups. With. You're guilty by association at that yeah. point. So And there's there's even, I should add, even during this time period, we've gone through this to this, back to the slow turnoff. We still have some people who they, they they're still not up to speed. And they're like, what? There was there what? And we even have on record Joseph F. Smith and uh, others saying, writing stake presidents or bishops saying, is anybody doing new plural marriages in your area? They're still trying to figure it out even after this yeah. to put an end to it. And then it gets so it gets so contentious and such a big deal that we get what is called the final manifesto in 1933. Yep. Clear down the road here in 1933. And this final manifesto, it's it's kind of a game changer because yeah. it becomes church policy that you don't even talk about don't it. Talk about you it. don't research polygamy. You don't speak in in your meetings. You don't write in your journals about it. It's it's kind of it becomes this taboo topic. And it was Heber J. J. Grant really. Heber J. Grant becomes the prophet in 1918, and I would say Heber J. Grant actually went on a proactive opposition against polygamy. Mm -hmm. Even though ironically he was a polygamist and had three wives. That's right. But by the time he became church president, he was only one of his wives was living, and he really wants to see these put into place. So he proactively goes, like against. Let's not even talk about or teach about it because let's, that will that will. Let's distance ourselves. Yeah, we need to distance ourselves from some of these fundamentalist groups that have that have broken off. Which one of the one of the consequences of this policy is that people born, you know, nineteen in the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s. My parents? They, my parents, they never heard about polygamy other than they knew much, that yeah. their, in some cases, their their grandpa or their, even their dad or mom was raised in a polygamous home, but you didn't, but see you it didn't in church talk curriculum. about it, and it was never, never taught. The, this final manifesto was so important that it's a 16-page document. They had it read in every ward. Every ward. And you had to sign it. I mean, and then they really want to distance the church from this, and so you won't see polygamy talked about in our church curriculum. So we get a generation from the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s who weren't raised hearing polygamy talked about very much, which is the time that my parents came to be, and then they give birth we were raised. to us, and, and so we don't hear it talked about much. And then in the 1990s, the internet starts to open up to popular mainstream. And suddenly people are talking about it. And so and we're going back and reading history saying, wait a minute. So we're kind of the generation right now um, that uh, didn't hear much about polygamy. And now it's everywhere again being talked about. So if, if it kind of feels like there's so much being said about it, it might be able to tie back to the final manifesto yeah. of it trying to be a little bit distanced from fundamentalist groups. Which is so interesting because now uh, our generations today, alive people alive today, it can become a trial of faith for us in a different way than it was a trial of faith for the people from the 1840s through the 1890s who were who were asked to live it, and then a different trial of faith for those who were asked to turn it off to stop it, and then a different trial of faith of, of the, how have we talked of about how it. have we talked about it and how do we teach about this? Well. It's now a trial of our faith today to wrestle with it and grapple with it and say, hmm, what was really going on and how much of it was God's will, how much of it was people just doing what they thought? Can, can, I, can I just share one story with this? Because at the heart of it, for every listener out there, that the ultimate fundamental question is, do I believe that Joseph Smith was a prophet of God and that God invested him with the keys to govern the kingdom with prophetic authority and that those have been passed down? And do I believe that God is guiding that head of the church in with continuing revelation? That is really the heart of it. That's it. Because the story, uh, real quick story, I one time had a chance, I was with a member of the first quorum of the 70, and there was a group of Muslim religious educators that came, they wanted to learn how Latter-day Saints taught their youth. So I was fortunate enough, this member of the 70 and these, these Muslim religious educators with their translators, they came and watched me teach. In your seminary class? Or? Yeah. This is back in my seminary days. And 
uh, when we got done, we had a question and answer session. And one of the men raised their hand and said, is polygamy allowed in your church? Because in Islam, the Prophet Muhammad says it is. It is. And I said, I turned to the general authority, like, you're the member of the 70. You answer that question. And he turned back to me. He goes, go right ahead. And I said something like, as best I can remember my words, I said something like, you know, it's interesting you'd say that our prophet Joseph Smith, our founding prophet, our Muhammad's in his way, received a revelation allowing a man to have more than one wife. And then I said, but then the U.S. government passed a bunch of laws that made it illegal, and so we quit practicing plural marriage. And right when I said that, the general authority stepped in. And he said, actually, that, that's not correct. He said, our prophet Joseph Smith received revelation allowing a man to have more than one wife, and our prophet Wilford Woodruff received a revelation that that practice should cease. And he said, our church functions on revelation from God. And it was a great corrective to me to reorient uh, what it was all about. That's powerful. For, for me, that's the essence of Official Declaration 1 and Official Declaration 2 is, do I feel like I'm smarter than God's prophets? Do I feel like I know more, that I'm more connected with God than they are? Um, I, I love, again, back to Isaiah when he, he gives that statement that you'll find at the very, very end of 2 Nephi chapter 7 where Jacob is speaking to the people and he's quoting Isaiah 50. Listen to this. Behold, all ye that kindle fire, that compass yourselves about with sparks, walk in the light of your fire and in the sparks which ye have kindled. We can come up with all the rationale, all the reasoning, all of the, the, the excuses for why we think it was done the way it was done or why it was wrong or why it was right. We can, we can kindle our own fire and walk by the light of our own sparks. But he says, this shall ye have of mine hand, ye shall lie down in sorrow. That's Isaiah speaking very plainly, saying, you can walk by your own light or you can turn to the light. And one of the ways that we love in the church is trusting that God is guiding our prophet today for what we need, just like he guided Wilfred Woodruff for what they needed and Joseph F. Smith for what they needed and Heber J. Grant for what he needed and they needed at that time. It's a beautiful principle. Yeah. So now as we turn our attention from Official Declaration 1 to Official Declaration 2, are you yeah. seeing a common thread here, Tony? Yeah, I mean, this is another declaration of a revelation received. It's not the revelation itself, but it's a declaration of a revelation received responding to uh, problems, questions, concerns, culture, pain points of God's people yeah. as a whole in dealing with this uh, restriction on black Africans and priesthood, yeah. which Official Declaration 2 is announcing the ending of that. This goes back hundreds of years when slaves were first brought over from Africa to the New World and also into parts of Europe and other parts of the world. Yeah, and I, I also think it's important for people to understand that originally, even though the Declaration is renouncing our restriction on black Africans with priesthood and temple, Paul Reeve, who's a historian from the University of Utah who studies this uh, subject, he wrote this, quote, the history of the race-based priesthood and temple restrictions is best understood as an evolution away from a racially open priesthood and temples toward a segregated priesthood and temples and then back again. Sometimes I'm not sure that uh, members of the church understand that originally our church was progressive for its time racially. We openly baptized uh, people of color, uh, black members of the church, worshiped side by side with them, ordained priesthood upon them where America was more segregated at the time. Mm -hmm. So we were progressive. Then we became segregated, and we'll talk about maybe some reasons why, uh, and were in line with America, uh, what America was doing at the time was segregation. Um, and then as America and civil rights went on in the 50s, 60s in particular, in 70s, yeah. 70s, then our, in 1978, this declaration. So there's this shift that's gone on. Yeah. Uh, over time. That's important to see. So, it, it, as you mentioned, in the earliest days of the church, there were there were black members of the church who not just were baptized but were given the priesthood yeah. and officiated in that priesthood. Elijah Abel was in the Kirtland Temple. Um, uh, Q. Walker Lewis, who, by the way, was a black convert from Massachusetts, and Brigham Young calls Q. Walker Lewis one of our best elders. 
um, is what he says about him. There's obviously members like Jane Manning James, but there's also, importantly understand, there are black members of the church who are slaves as well. Yeah, because if you baptize a slaveholder, often their whole household would be baptized with them. You have people like Green Flake, who joins the church in 1844, I believe, in Nauvoo, and Green Flake will be one of the first people to come into the Utah Valley, into the Salt Lake Valley, and he and there's three uh, enslaved men will be some of the first to put uh, crops in the ground in, in the Salt Lake Valley. And so when we come to Utah, it proposes there, it, it's, there's some difficulty. And one of the difficulties is you have free black Latter-day Saints who come and gather to Utah, and you have enslaved black Latter-day Saints, and there are no laws governing Utah territory. We, we are out in the West on our own, and the church has to wrestle with this difficulty of what, kind of what do we do and what are we going to do with slavery in this area as a whole. And one of the things that they come up with is in 1852, they passed the Utah State Legislature. Now, that sounds like an independent political body. They're all, they're all members, of the, members of the church and leaders of the church. In the Utah Territory in the 1850s, there is just no separation between church and state. They pass a law called the Act in Relation to Service, which legalizes slavery in the territory. They try to make it, um, they try to temper it a little bit, like they say you can't abuse your slaves, you have to feed, educate, how, you know. But one of the provisions that they make that's interesting as kind of a compromise is they in essence say anybody born to uh, slaves are not enslaved themselves. So they're, they're actually proposing a way to end slavery after one generation. One generation, which is different. It's a, it's a break from But it does bring on. slavery into Utah territory and into the church. It's, and it's not coincidental. We don't know why exactly there's a restriction on black Africans and priesthood and temple, but I also don't think it's coincidental that as that act and relation service is passed, we get our first public announcement from Brigham Young. In 1852. In 1852 acting as territorial governor at a legislature meeting saying, we are no longer going to confer priesthood on black yeah. Africans. So then you get this long history from 1852 all the way through to 1978 with that restriction in place. So a lot of reasons and rationale and arguments have been given as to why and when and how. The reality is, is we're, we're doing guesswork here. And it's important to say, by the way, that um, uh, even the church's own essay on this subject says that it's not entirely clear. That's, that's how it's phrased mm -hmm. there. There is no known revelation to President Brigham Young to implement this restriction. Correct, and that's important to keep in, in mind. So, fast forward in time to the 1970s, President Kimball's now the, the president of the church. He's not the first to wrestle with this question of no. can we can we give the priesthood to, to our black members and can we send missionaries to Africa because they're they're big groups of people just yeah. pleading for missionaries to be brought. And David then, O. McKay wrestles David with it. David O. McKay's going to wrestle with it. And then you get stories like Elvesio Martins down in some or down in he lives in Rio de Janeiro down in Rio of Brazil. And he's black, and his family's there. He's very wealthy in, in a petroleum company down there. He'll go to Sao Paulo in Brazil. He'll donate time and money to the building of this temple, knowing that when the temple's dedicated, he and his family won't be allowed to go inside, that his son won't be allowed to go mm -hmm. on a mission when he goes to church in Brazil, they're talking about the excitement of going and being sealed as families, and he has to look down the row at his family and think, it's not for us. So you get stories like that coming, and, and it just tugs at the heartstrings. Yeah. And, and you know, it, it is important, and if you want to read, by the way, an article that's fascinating, because Brother Griffin and I won't be able to cover the whole history of this in this short video uh, that it deserves. Read an article called Spencer W. Kimball and the Revelation on the Priesthood. It's written by his son, Edward Kimball. It was published by BYU Studies. In my opinion, it's the de facto article on the subject. It's, it's, it's so the, informative it to understand is, this history. It's the best I've ever read. It's amazing. We'll put a link to that article in the, the comments below so you can access that if you yeah. like. 
Uh, I'd, I'd recommend that if, if you study official declaration to the heading, I think, gives a great summary of the history here. Now, I would just say, for those of you with the older edition of the scriptures, the 1981 edition of the Triple yeah. Combination, you won't get this heading that Tony's about to read. Yeah, I think in 2013 it's, is it's when It's in the 2013 they... print edition, or you can find it online. Just listen how good this is. The Book of Mormon teaches that all are alike unto God, and I think it's important that we know that this is our Book of Mormon doctrine. Um, all are alike unto God, black and white, bond and free, male and female, 2 Nephi 26:33. Throughout the history of the church, people of every race and ethnicity in many countries have been baptized and have lived as faithful members of the church. During Joseph Smith's lifetime, a few black male members of the church were ordained to the priesthood, as we've talked about a few of those. Early in its history, church leaders stopped conferring the priesthood on black males of African descent. Church records offer no clear insights into the origins of this practice. So we've kind of covered that up to that point. Church leaders believe that a revelation from God was needed to alter this practice and prayerfully sought guidance. The revelation came to church president Spencer W. Kimball and was affirmed to other church leaders in the Salt Lake Temple on June 1st, 1978. The revelation removed all restrictions with regard to race that once applied to the priesthood. There's just some packed lines in there, too. By the way, just offhand, if you read that Edward Kimball article, you'll you'll read that as President Kimball was wrestling with this question, uh, one of his counselors said to him, President, it doesn't appear that there was a revelation that implemented the restriction. I don't think we need a revelation to remove it. I think we can can just just make a unanimous decision. And President Kimball said, this is such an important question. I want a revelation from the Lord on the subject. And he had even tasked many of the, the members of the First Presidency Quorum of the Twelve the year before in 1977 to go and search the scriptures and search any previous revelations they could find to see if there was any reason why this restriction should remain in place. And it's fascinating as those reports come back and people like Elder McConkie saying, yeah. I can't find any scriptural foundation reason for why you can't open up the priesthood for all yeah. of God's children. And it seems from Edward Kimball's research anyway that that Bruce, that Bruce R. McConkie's essay, that homework that President the, the, Kimball gave him, it was Bruce R. McConkie's essay that was perhaps the most convincing that this was the right path to follow. This could time. be, it was time to remove this. So I love when when I'm personally working through struggles or trying to get answers from me or my family or my church calling or my students, whatever whatever the setting may be, I love seeing the pattern here of what President Kimball did. Uh, this you, You'll notice this wasn't a, hmm, one day I think this is a good idea, go and take it to the, to the First Presidency Quorum of the Twelve and say, let's do mm. this, let's pray about it, good, let's, let's be done. This has been going on for years. Not just him, but previous prophets mm-hmm. have been wrestling with this. Listen to this quote from President Kimball. After everybody had gone out of the temple, I knelt and prayed. I prayed with much fervency. I knew that something was before us that was extremely important to many of the children of God. I knew that we could receive the revelations of the Lord only by being worthy and ready for them and ready to accept them and put them into place. Did you catch that? That sometimes God's willing to give you a revelation decades before they actually come, but it might be because you weren't ready to receive it or maybe ready to receive it but not ready ready to to implement implement it, it, not ready to put it into place. There's a reason why the Lord gave Joseph Smith some things in 1830, but not others. That's right. Gave him some things in 1835 or 40. 1842. When, when he was ready, when the church was ready, when they could be implemented. Now listen to this next line. Day after day, I went alone and with great solemnity and seriousness in the upper rooms of the temple, and there I said, Lord, I want only what is right. We want only the thing that thou dost want, and we want it when you want it and not until. I, I don't know about you, but that, that is a beautiful pattern for seeking revelation for our lives, and that's the pattern that his prophets are using for the church. And so sometimes if you get this idea or this, uh, this sentiment that, man, 
why isn't the church doing more for this group or for that group or why are we moving quicker in this direction? You've got to trust Mm. that God's prophets are pleading with heaven to find out what heaven wants them to do when heaven wants them to do it and perhaps, just perhaps, some of the delay might not be because they're not asking or because they're not worthy of getting the answer, perhaps sometimes delay might be because we collectively haven't changed our heart and turned our lives to the Lord in such a way that we're ready collectively to receive some of the revelations that are coming. Well, with that, I think President Kimball, in official declaration too, he, he lists two reasons why this revelation came. One of them is what Brother Griffin just mentioned, witnessing the faithfulness of those from whom the priesthood has been withheld. Like, that is a key. He sees the faithfulness of, of those mm-hmm. from whom have been withheld. And then his second one is aware of promises made by prophets and presidents of the church who have preceded us, that at some time in God's eternal plan, all our brethren who are worthy may receive the priesthood. And so he also is calling in, hearkening to promises made from, from in Scripture and prophets that the global expansion of the church needs to move forward. So now let's, let's fast forward to June 1st, 1978, when we're missing two of the members of the Quorum of the Twelve who are out on other assignments, but we have the First Presidency and, and ten of the Twelve there in their normal meeting that happens every week, and they've come in the spirit of fasting. President Kimball asked them to come mm-hmm. fasting. And so President Kimball told the church news of that day, quote, we held a meeting of the Council of the Twelve in the temple on the regular day. We considered this very seriously and thoughtfully and prayerfully. I asked the Twelve not to go home when the time came. I offered the final prayer and I told the Lord if it wasn't right, if he didn't want this change to come to the church, that I would be true to it all the rest of my life. We had this special prayer circle, and then I knew that the time had come. Others have said, have reported who were there, Mm -hmm. that he asked them if they would be willing to join him in a prayer circle there in the temple, and he asked if it would be okay with them if he acted as the voice in that prayer circle. Can you imagine the meekness of God's prophet Spencer W. Kimball, who had been through so many surgeries and had so many health challenges, and this kneeling, pleading, humble, meek prophet of God, surrounded by the other members of the First Presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve, pouring his heart out to the Lord, saying, can we please have your permission? Is it the, is it the right time? Is it the right thing to do? And everyone, to a man who was there, said, that the conduits of heaven opened up. Oh, yeah. It was like a conduit opened to heaven. They called it Pentecostal. This is President Kimball's own summary from it. Quote, we had a glorious experience of having the Lord indicate clearly that the time had come when all worthy men and women everywhere can be fellow heirs and partakers of the full blessings of the gospel. Again, it might even tie a little bit into what we just talked about with Official Declaration 1, that the, the, the focus is always on covenant commitment to the Lord and receiving the ordinances of exaltation. That's motivating uh, what's happening here. I want you to know as a special witness of the Savior how close I have felt to him and to our Heavenly Father as I have made numerous visits to the upper rooms of the temple. Going on some days several times by myself, the Lord made it very clear to me what was to be done." End of quote. Now, did you notice this is God's prophet? He has he holds all of the keys to administer the ordinances of the gospel on the earth. He's the only one authorized to do that. And he had to go many days, many weeks, months, years, years. doing lots of homework, studying it out, asking others to help him study it out. And it's years in the making. And yet, when I have a serious question, how easily and how quickly I get frustrated with God and, and, and disturbed that he, he won't answer my question. Yeah. I'm fasting for goodness sakes and I'm doing my best to live the gospel and, and I need an answer 
I love this pattern of Spencer W. Kimball, who was incidentally the prophet of my youth. He, he was, mm -hmm. yeah, that was the voice of the prophet that I was raised with because President Harold B. Lee passed away when I was only 20 days old. So I, I grew up with President Spencer W. Kimball as the voice of, of God's prophet. And I, I love that man for sticking with this long process. And I want to be more like him in that regard. I don't want to throw a tantrum when I don't get the answer when I first ask. I want to keep yeah. working through it. So it, if it's okay, uh, let's talk about a few other applications. Maybe how do we, how do we from this, how do we approach statements in the past uh, connected to this policy? How do we look at uh, racism in the church and in the world mm -hmm. today, uh, guidance from our prophet? And then third, maybe it's just some perspectives on the ongoing restoration. Beautiful. Let's do it. And so it's, it's important, if you read the church's essay on this, the word that they use is that the church disavows any of the explanations trying to give uh, justification or reasons for why for the, the practice, was place, why yeah. it was put into place. So it's, it's important, you know, uh, that uh, Elder Holland even said this one time, I have to concede to my earlier colleagues, they, I'm sure, in their own way were doing the best they knew to give shape to the policy, to give context for it, even to give history to it. All I can say is however well intended their explanations were, I think almost all of them were inadequate, inadequate and or wrong." End of quote. And Bruce R. McConkie said, we spoke with limited understanding. And so when you hear different things, and sadly they do get perpetuated still in the church today, Please be one of the first to say, we dis there, there aren't those reasons. We don't support that. That's not our doctrine. We don't believe that as a whole. It's a good application, too, for us today that sometimes there are certain policies or practices within the church, and sometimes we want to give reasons for the practice yeah. when the reasons haven't necessarily been revealed or made clear. That, that sometimes is when, is when we create harm. Uh, uh, and, and hurt and problems that future generations have to to clean up. Absolutely. Any time that we try to take the place of God, giving the reasons why, or even sometimes the the implementations of some of the how of of things that have been revealed, that's dangerous because that'll often come back to bite us down the road. And I love being meek enough to say we don't know. It hasn't been revealed. Yeah. So let's go and with what God has revealed, and sometimes when we go to him and say why, he doesn't reveal the why all the time. Yeah, yeah. And, and maybe that leads to a second one. Our, our, our current prophet, President Russell M. Nelson, has uh, uh, said this, quote, the creator of us all calls on each of us to abandon attitudes of prejudice against any group of God's children. Any of us who has prejudice towards another race needs to repent. And then in a joint statement with the NAACP wrote, prejudice, hate, and discrimination are learned. Thus, we call on parents, family members, and teachers to be the first line of defense. We likewise call on government, business, and educational leaders at every level to review processes, laws, and organizational attitudes regarding racism and root them out once and for all. Treating each other as sons and daughters of God matters, end of quote. And then the third is, remember, this, as our prophets have said, is an ongoing restoration. Um, the restoration is not complete, and it will not be complete until all the effects of the fall have been conquered, until this earth is made to be a paradisical glory, and until the Lord's will is done perfectly on this earth like it is in heaven. Until then, we are working towards that ideal. Sometimes we're given ideals and we're here. And so don't be afraid of, by the way, in the past, we don't need to uh, justify everything. We don't need to say that everything was right. We can acknowledge the shadows. We can acknowledge the wrong. We can acknowledge the hurt. Indeed, I would say we must in order to help progress and help the ongoing restoration happen to help the Lord's will be perfectly done on this earth as it is in heaven. I, I love that, Tony. It's this idea of you are not accountable for every quote, every policy, every declaration that's ever been given, not just in the history of our church, but in the history of dispensations of the gospel back to Adam and Eve. You're not accountable for that. You're not held hostage by that. Nor 
are you held hostage by what future revelations and policies and shifts and adjustments are going to come? We're judged based on how we handle our present life, our present day, how we follow our prophets, seers, and revelators today, and trust that God is going to continue to give them mm -hmm. those directions down the road, and then you're going to be accountable for it at that point because that will then be your present. It's, it's liberating to not have to defend every single thing that's ever been done or said in the church or in history. I, I think it's actually a part of, um, back to humility within ourselves, uh, we don't justify everything we've done individually in the past because we know that owning errors and mistakes and problems is part of repentance. And uh, in the same way, we have to acknowledge wrongs and, and harm and, and difficulties. Now, in order for us to continue to repent to and to forward. move forward, now I'll be the first to say, by the way, that it's not up to you and I necessarily to say, to judge everything in the church. Sometimes we speak with limited lenses ourselves. We let the Lord work it out. But I will say I am, I have 100 percent confidence and faith in the ongoing nature of the restoration, that the Lord will work with us, with all of his children, to help us understand his will and to help lead us line upon line to get his will to be perfectly done on this earth like it is in heaven. It's beautiful. Can you imagine what it was like a week later, June 8th, when President Kimball presented this to, to all of the general authorities for a sustaining vote, and it came through unanimous, and he turns to his first counselor, uh, President, and Eldon Tanner pats him on the knee and says, go tell the world. As this revelation goes out to people, throughout Africa, throughout Central and South America and the, and the United States and nations in Europe, and as the word spreads for people like Elvesio Marchins and his family, this long-awaited day as these, these faithful, wonderful, devoted people are now given an opportunity not just to be baptized like they've been all along, but now to receive the priesthood and to receive those ordinances of the temple. And uh, when I served my mission in Brazil, some of the finest people I've ever met to this day in my life have been some of those, uh, those black saints. It's the, the João Modesto and his family. It's the Getulio Santos. It's students that I've had in my classes in subsequent years who I, I'm just in awe at their goodness and at their, their faithfulness, and I love the fact that God gave us this declaration um, early in, in our life to open the door so that we can be part of watching the flood of the gospel go to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, regardless of race or lineage. So to conclude, brothers and sisters, regardless of your race, regardless of your nationality, regardless of what language you speak, or regardless of your gender, just know that there is a God in heaven who loves you and who has his arms open wide, inviting all of God's children to come into those arms of safety and to be saved by him. And we leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Know that you're loved. Thank you.